Hello, welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast with best-selling author John Boyne and book club members Jacinta Wright and Han Zummer. I'm Martin Doyle, Assistant Literary Editor of the Irish Times. John Boyne is best known for his international bestseller, The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, which alone has sold more than 6 million copies and has been made into a feature film. But he has written 13 in total, 9 for adults and 4 for younger readers, and his work has been translated into 47 languages. It has taken him 15 years and 12 novels, however, to write about his native Ireland. A History of Loneliness is the story of a Catholic priest whose comfortable life teaching in a private boys' school is thrown into turmoil as the litany of clerical sex abuse and subsequent cover-ups test his vocation, his friendships and his family ties. There's a very powerful quote in the book, Is there no recovery from the traumas of our youth? How can something still feel so painful after 28 years? A couple of weeks ago, John, we published a very powerful piece by you in which you recounted the damage you suffered at the hands of priests. You were once so badly beaten by a priest that you missed two weeks' school. You were spanked on the bare backside in front of classmates, molested by a lay teacher, and told as a gay teenager that you were sick and disordered by a cleric who had groped you the day before. There is a lot of anger in the book, characters losing control. Was 15 years enough as a writer to give you the necessary distance to tackle such a personal, emotionally charged subject? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think I needed that long to actually write about Ireland. I, I had this line I used to say regularly uh, whenever asked about whenever I was asked why I didn't write about Ireland, and it was that that I didn't um, want to do so until I had a story to tell. And I think I always had this story inside me to tell, but I didn't feel confident enough necessarily to write about it. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't write about the subject of homosexuality until I wrote The Absolutist, which was, I think, my ninth book. Um, so I made a decision very early on in my writing that I wanted to keep the personal out of it and just write from my imagination, just make things up. And it's only, I guess, as I've got older and more, more experienced in novel writing and maybe more confident as a person that I felt uh, I wanted to talk about things which were more personal, more emotional. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily feel that that's what I want to do with every book coming up. You know, I mean, I'll still write the kind of books that I've always written, but I felt with this, um, I felt I had a way into the story that perhaps hadn't been approached before because every time I thought about novels and the church and how to write about sexual abuse, it always seemed that the only way to write about it was to write about a villain. And I thought, eventually I thought, actually, the interesting way to write this is not to write about a villain. It's to write about somebody who has tried, has done his best to live a good life and to acknowledge that fact. I mean, I, I'm somebody who for many years was really quite angry towards the church and quite opposed to them. And uh, it was a challenge for me to say, let's, as I, as I said, I think in that, that piece you published, to find goodness where I had previously only found evil. And that's what you're trying to do, I suppose, as a novelist, is to challenge yourself. So I started, I started really with the idea of a good man. And my intention was he was going to be a good man all the way through. I certainly knew he was going to have committed no criminal acts. But because I don't plot novels in advance, I don't plan out what's going to happen. I only start with, with an idea. Um, of course, that voice and that character changed somewhat so that he remains effective, for the most part, good. And he certainly has done, uh, n committed no criminality. But he has been complicit. And again, it surprised me that when I got towards the end, the person who I was feeling some level of sympathy towards 
was not the person who I would have expected to at the start, and the person who I was feeling anger towards was not the person I would have expected to at the start. And I think that's good in a novel, if it surprises you like that. Hans, if I could turn to you, um, how did you find uh, the central character of, of the book? Did you find him a good man or a good priest, in fact? For me, the theme of complicity is very strong in the in the book. And I think you've done incredibly well portraying a, a character who, um, and I've, you've portrayed him very sensitively, I think, and this this thing that, yeah, he is, he is a witness. He knew more than he wanted to know. And so this theme of complicity is very interesting. I, I myself, I grew up in uh, in the Netherlands in a good Presbyterian family. And I, for me, this issue, uh, my family had had a rather painful brush with the Nazis. Uh, and in my, so I was always brought up, you know, with this, you know, this not knowing is not good enough. You know, you have to make your own moral judgments. So the book spoke to me really strongly that way. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it uh, for that reason. I, I did think that maybe Odron Yates, who's the main character, is a is a bit too naive. Yeah, it's it's actually something that's come up with in the past with some of the books I've written. I think, particularly with the books for young people, where um, I've often been told that perhaps they're a little bit too naive. Yeah, I think maybe I'm guilty of that a little bit sometimes in this book. Um, but it's a lot of it can be seen with hindsight. You know that it, because I I I title these chapters with the years, and if you look at a character, say in you know the late seventies or the early eighties. It's it's easy sometimes to look at that with us knowing everything that happened and saying, well, why wouldn't he know what was going on? But would they know at the time? It's hard to know. You know, I think, you know, we're we're probably too young, actually, all of us, to, to put ourselves back to being the age we are now then and to know that. Um, but it's it's a valid question, I think, of is he is he too naive? I hope he's I hope he's naive and not just stupid. You know, I think uh that's, he that's, does make a few rather big mistakes uh, throughout the book, particularly, I guess, uh, the story there in uh, in Rome. There's an episode there, and uh, and also the, on Grafton Street here. <laughs> well, the, the Grafton Street episode is uh, was one of my starting places because um, if, if shall I just recount that that moment? Because I had this when I was thinking about the idea of a priest who is now going out into the world and being shouted at and. Um, people are suspicious of him just simply because of the clothes he is wearing. Uh, I, I just had this idea at the start of, you know, if, if you were in a shop, and if you saw a lost child, and if you tried to help that child, and if in your, in your naivety or your stupidity, you know, you take that child by the hand, whether you're a priest or not a priest, you know, it's, it's, it's something which can only lead to disaster, I think. And, and it came from, a, a priest told me in my interviews for this, that, um, he used this phrase to me that if a child knocked on his door, his front door, and his arm was hanging off and there was blood pouring down his face and he'd been savagely beaten, the first thing he would do is close the door in the child's face. And that that's a tragic thing in itself. If your job is to help people, and, and you know, the basic idea of, of, of Christianity is helping each other, being kind to each other, loving our neighbour. Um, none of us would see a child on their own on the street weeping and just walk past that child. But I think we'd all still feel slightly nervous of how to approach that child too. I'm not sure what I would do in that situation. Jacinta, if I could bring you into the conversation, how did you find the portrayal um, of Father Yates and how did you take the, the themes of guilt and innocence or blindness or culpability? Well, on my first reading of the novel, I absolutely just 
loved this character of Oren Yates and he seemed to me to be, you know, the moral heart of the book reacts with absolute amazement when he hears of, um, you know, the shifting round of priests from parish to parish. Uh, so to me, he was the good priest. He was the hero priest. And, you know, we do know priests like this. So I was completely drawn in by this wonderful character and also by, uh, I loved the architecture of the plot where we're moving backwards and forwards in time. We never have quite the whole story. I um, was blind myself to the last few pages. I didn't want to take them on board because it didn't accord very well with my wonderful image of Oren Yates. And then on my uh, second reading of the novel, it all sort of, I realised the very dark universe that Oren Yates was existing in. And it seemed that um, he was deliberately donning this cloak of innocence constantly. And I think it's interesting, we're told that when he's a child, he has problems with his sight. Um, and there are fears that, you know, he'll suffer from long-term blindness. But of course, he does suffer from long-term blindness. And he covers himself in this cloak of innocence. Um, like when he has this skirmish with his um, cute neighbour, um, he says, well, I was an innocent boy. You know, I grew up in an innocent house in innocent times. He's constantly using that word innocent to describe himself. And, um, he, you know, he says about his nephew, Aidan, at the beginning of the novel, he said he lacked my innocence and my inability to confront. So, I mean, then I just realized to a certain extent that this this is a cloak, you know, that uh, he has surrounded himself with and he, you know, he does not wish to see. But in defense of your character, I think maybe you're being a bit harsh on him. Like, I feel that to some extent it could be explained by the terrible traumas that he suffered in childhood. And then he suffers another trauma as an adolescent. And he talks about, I'm, I moved it from one part of my head to another. So that, that was kind of convincing to me. But I think the final scene is absolutely remarkable. You know, the, the judged shall be the judge. And it turns out that Oren's cloak of innocence is kind of eventually torn apart, you know. I think I think I, I hoped that he would be somewhat of a, an unreliable narrator because mm-hmm. I don't think he's a bad man, you know, and I didn't want readers to really hate him by the end or anything because I think he is essentially a good person. But uh, there's there's a moment which I, I think is important where there's a chapter that takes place in 1990 where he's aware that um, a child has been vandalizing the car of uh, a priest, and this moment reappears. Uh, in a chapter which takes place about 20 or so years later in a courtroom in Dublin where it's revealed that Odrin has informed the Gardaí of what he saw. But in the 1990 chapter, he doesn't tell us that. And he says in the later chapter, um, when I told you that story earlier, when I told you about 1990, did I mention that I was the one who went to the police? If I didn't, I should have. There it is out in the open now. And for me, when I wrote that, I thought I wanted him to change as the story progressed, that actually, as it gets close to the end, he, uh, like how we started this interview in a way, talking about, you know, my journey as a novelist, he gets to a place in his life where actually he has to be open and he has to be honest. And he is the one recounting that that final climactic scene where, um, you know, the way you expressed it there, the, the judge, choppy judge is... That's that's the perfect way to describe it, I think. But I don't think he's a I don't think he's a bad man. I think he's just you know one of these people that I always thought that these kids who went into seminaries and had no teenage years, no young adulthood, no way of maturing into the world. It's it's hard to blame them for for being unable to cope 
with with adult behavior and the responsibilities of adulthood and adult relationships. When you block all that out of your life from a very young age, I mean, I wasn't even able to cope with adult relationships until I was well into my, you know, twenties, late twenties, and you know, and I was actually having some. So you know, you you think um, it's very easy for us to just judge people like this. But I'm I'm glad you say about you know the like you've known priests like this, good priests, because I, I as as I said earlier, that you know as somebody who had had anger towards the church, I do think it's important to say that there are many men and women, when given the opportunity, as the church rarely does, but women too, who have devoted their lives to the true ethos of the church, both, both I mean, Christian church, of, of, of living well, of helping people. Um, and they are people whose, who, th- their stories are tragic stories because they wake up now and they recognize that, um, that they are sort of tarred with the same brush as, as people who have done terrible things. And, and that's not fair, is it, really? What about looking at the, the wider aspect of society? Like there's a reference to Charlie Hawhey's conspicuous wealth and the suggestion that it was something everybody knew about but nobody talked about. Hans, um, we spoke earlier about um, your, your association with perhaps um, talking about the boy in the striped pyjamas and the kind of the complicity of an, at a national level. Everybody knew but nobody said or we didn't really know but actually we did. What would you say that it goes beyond the church to a kind of a, a national um, shame, if you like, in terms of everybody knew about the Magdalene laundries, you know, perhaps everybody had their suspicions about um, child abuse or whatever, but as a nation or as a people, um, we shied away from confronting that reality. Yeah, I, I think so. When, as I started writing this, because I hadn't written about Ireland before, so many issues even ones not related to the church came up for me and things had just poured out. You mentioned the Charlie Hawhey thing. And I, I you know, I, every time, you know, say whenever, like it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or whatever, when um, all the dramas about, about Hawhey were coming out. And I used to, I used to wonder to myself, um, did nobody ever think back then that a Taoiseach salary was a matter of public record? And, you know, if you're only getting paid this much, how can you possibly own an island and helicopters? And did nobody, did no journalists ever, I mean, I was just a kid, but did nobody ever question that? And by the same token, there was children coming home from school. You mentioned it, it happened to me, you know, badly beaten by, by priests and by teachers. And for the most part, parents did nothing about that. I couldn't imagine that happening today. You know, I imagine if anybody in this room, if their child came home, badly beaten by anybody in a position of authority. Well, you know, there'd be war, and quite rightly so. But back then, people didn't. You know, there was, a, there was a fear of the church, I think, a fear of authority, fear of upsetting the apple cart. Um, and, and those things have changed, and that's, that's, that's only for the good. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think there's been, a, there's been a whole slew of issues in this country, and probably other countries. I mean, you, you, Hans, came from Holland, you're saying, and, you know, my experience is here. And, and your experience is here. And we, we look at our country and we see all the flaws in it. But it's not all flawed either. And that's, I keep coming back to this idea of goodness as well. I, I don't want to be the guy who's saying, um, that everything in the country is bad. You know, the opening line of the novel is, I didn't grow ashamed of, didn't grow ashamed of being Irish until I was well into the middle years of my life. And there's a part of me wonders, was that sensible? Because I've done a lot of interviews with the, with the English press who keep, 
assuming that that's what I feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel that. You know, I'm not ashamed to be Irish. I'm very proud to be Irish. And I, you know, I represent myself as an Irish writer in my professional life, wherever I go. Um, but, you know, we, we have to look at the, the, the positives and the negatives in, in the country we live in. What about the playing around with chronology? It's one of the most striking features of the book that, you know, everything doesn't happen um, it, or everything is not presented in the order in which it happens. What was your intention there? What are the the risks and what are the benefits of that, that strategy? Well, that's really just a structure that I feel very comfortable with. It's, it's one I've used before. I wrote a novel called The House of Special Purpose, which one half of the novel is set in the three years leading up to the Russian Revolution and the other half is set in the six years that follow it. And it's, it's alternate chapters, but with one story moving forward and one story moving backwards. So they meet at the end. And in The Absolutist, you know, we move back and forth in time a lot. Um, it's, it's just something actually, it's not something I give an awful lot of planning to. I feel comfortable with it. And I get, I start, I knew I was going to start now. Uh, and I would, or, or, you know, within the last sort of 10 years, begin the story, see who the characters are, and then pause, bring it back to his childhood, then move right the way forward to now, then back to the 70s, into the 80s, back again, up to the 90s. Um, and as I mentioned, because I don't plot the novels, for me, it's with every, every time I come to the, as I'm coming to the end of a chapter, I'm thinking, right, I have to leave it on a moment of sort of suspense, but also revelation, you know, where you, you learn a little bit more about the characters and the secrets of the book are beginning to open up to you. And just as they are, we pause and we go to another part. And I, I guess I hope as the writer that that is something that keeps a person reading. One thing I noticed was there were a couple of occasions where I felt, um, I don't know whether the right word is an indulgence or whatever, but there were almost like kind of, you know, a, a wink to the reader. There was a reference to Al Gore and I wonder what might happen to him. There was mm. another reference to Liverpool and sure, they'll never win anything again. And, and they never have. <laughs> uh, they went on to win the European well, um, Champions League. So I kind of wonder, um, was that a bit knowing on the part of the narrator? Was that kind of breaking the, the spell a little or... Was that just, is it, is it, is it okay, in fact, to, to have a little um, fun like that? I'm not sure. I think that's really something that a reader would have to decide. I think, uh, for me, I guess I felt lines like that are, are something that would be reasonable for a person to say at the time. I don't know. It's, that's a difficult one for me to judge. I think readers would need to, to see that they, I hope they don't jump out of the text. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think anything in a novel should, should jump out at that. And I don't like the idea of winks to the reader. That's not, that would not be an intention of mm-hmm. mine. And if, if it comes across like that, that's a, that's a failing. I wouldn't like to do that. I, I was interested, John, in, in the, you've talked a little bit about you, how you worked on the, on the book. And I, I must say, I thought uh, it was incredibly well written. The, the language is beautiful. I uh, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, it was a very easy read and, and very engaging. Uh, I was just wondering, as you were crafting the book, how much were you thinking of the reader? How much were you thinking of, of elaborating the, the characters? How, how do you go about it? Just simply for um, I don't really think about the reader, I have to admit. I think about the, think about the story I'm telling and the character. Almost all of my novels for adults are first person. And uh, they always, in, instinctively, I start with the first person in the same way that all my books for young readers are third person. For some reason, in the adult ones, I need to get deeply inside the, the head of the character that I'm, that I'm writing about. And I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm really trying to craft a real, authentic, living human being that you will, you will care about. Uh, but... I'm not thinking about how the reader will respond to it or how the, how the, you know, the commercial world will respond to it or anything like that. I, I guess I am, if there's one thing I am doing, it's 
I don't like to think about manipulating the reader, but I, I've always been a writer who looks for emotion in a story. That's, that's what I like as a writer. It's what I like as a reader. You know, I want to, I want to move the reader, um, preferably quite a lot. You know, if I could really upset the reader in, in, a, in a positive way, you know, I, tears are a good thing, I think, um, then that's, that's what I want. But, but not in a, hopefully not manipulative way uh, or a cynical way. But I do really like to make it as, as, as moving as I possibly can. And that's why I think I, I often, in, in quite a few of the books, bring in a character who you'll care about or you'll know a little bit about, and they will be the person who has suffered the most. And when you realise that, hopefully that will have an effect on you as a reader and, and it, will, it will surprise you. I mean, you know, it's, it's not something I want to harp right into, but one of the reasons I always thought that Boy in the Striped Pajamas was successful was because people cared about those two boys. And when they got to that, what I think was possibly a surprising ending, that that's what moved them and that's what made people talk about it. And I think for me, there's a moment in this book, as, as you, you've read it, where there's a revelation about the experience of one character, which I think the reader wouldn't see coming. And I hope that's a, a moving moment. I think there was one moment where you lost me a little bit, and that was uh, Arch, uh, Pope John Paul yeah. I, where I did think um, he displayed an enormous amount of knowledge about Ireland, which I thought, you know, a, a bit like what you were saying, Martin, is this, uh, for whose benefit is it there? And he breaks out in a song. Yeah. And I thought, well, this doesn't seem so plausible to me. Yeah, I, I think... Um, if there was one part of the book that I that I remain slightly unsatisfied with, it's the Rome section. I worked really hard in that Rome section, but I don't necessarily feel that it's it rings as true as as all the rest of it. But it, you know, it's there. I needed to bring Odrin away from Ireland. You know, I need. I I felt it was getting a little bit claustrophobic at times, and I needed him to have some experience of the world outside. And also, I wanted him to have an experience of love. I wanted, or or, or at least of lust. Um, I wanted him to, to to just fall for somebody, to see someone and just, you know, desire them. I didn't want him to be like a, a eunuch all the way through. Um, so I felt I needed that. And so I bring him to Rome and allow him to have his, his final year there. And yeah, I put him in this uh, position of, um, you know, political influence, I suppose, with, with, with John Paul I and with Paul VI. And I, I think that's... You know, anybody who has read any of my earlier books, that's kind of a very me thing to do, mm-hmm. is to put the, the, the inexperienced character right at the center of power. You know, in House of Special Purpose, you've got a young boy who becomes bodyguard to the Tsarevich. Um, in, in The Bounty, you know, we have a young boy who becomes Captain Bly's cabin boy. I, I do this a lot. It, maybe it's something I, I fall back on a little bit. But so I, I mean, I think you're possibly right. I think it's, if, if there's a weakness, it might be there. I'm a bit surprised though that um, you're describing it as an experience of lust because to me all he seemed to want to do was look at her and he also says that himself you know and when they finally get very close together uh, in in her apartment um, all he can think of he's you know he revisits an absolutely horrible memory something that he's buried very deeply so it's like um, I, he does seem to have a very repressed sexuality in his encounter with this woman, but also in the encounter with uh, Catherine Summers, the neighbour. Yes, yes. Um, so, I mean, I suppose I'm doing all kinds of analysis on it, you know, explaining it um, to myself, which would be that, you know, the terrible childhood trauma that he experienced has left him in a state of pre-adolescent sexuality. And he, he never 
fully realises an adult sexuality because, you know, all he wants to do is look at this woman. Yeah, no, that's true. You know? but, but that is also what you say is true of, of so many of the priests as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've often thought, and I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but I've often thought that the term paedophile priest is, is a slight misnomer in a way because the, the amount of priests who committed criminal acts, many of these men were basically children thrown into seminaries. Their sexuality was never allowed to develop. They're, they were never mature in any way. And then they, they become a priest because their parents have, it's not because they have a vocation. They're just children, for God's sakes, you know. And they wake up one day when they're in their 30s or their 40s and their, their youth is gone. And suddenly they're, you know, they're, they're opening their eyes to the fact that sexuality is all around them. And what did they look for? They looked for vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't, think in every case they were looking for children. I, I personally believe that if the Catholic Church, for example, um, allowed priests to marry, I don't believe that a lot of these people whose sexuality was in the literal sense perverted, um, that it would have become perverted in that way. There's no reason to think that their sexuality would not have been channeled, you know, towards towards a, a wife or, or, you know, a partner of some description. It, it seems to me there's a reason why in the Catholic Church there's been so many incidents of this and not in other churches. Um, so, yeah, there is repressed sexuality. And in, in Odrin's case, that repressed sexuality stays within him. I, I, I think he is meant to be a priest, though. But in other characters' cases, that repressed sexuality is going to just explode at some point, explode in the most horrible ways. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what happened. And... You wonder with these people what happened to them when they were children and what happened to the people who hurt them when they were children. And it's a cycle that goes back and back and back. And it's perhaps an unkind society that wouldn't recognise that and think that's not to justify anything. Of course it's not. But trauma goes on and on and on and it goes back and back and back generations. And until things, institutions like the Catholic Church are willing to take on issues of marriage and women in the church and child abuse, then it will continue to go on. I mean, one thing that strikes me that's very, very odd is it's been 35 years, 35 years since a pope set foot in this country. John Paul II got here in 79, shortly after he was, um, after he became pope. He never came back. Benedict never came. And Pope Francis hasn't been in long, but hasn't come. Ireland has a tradition, a history of Catholicism. Ireland has given a lot to the Catholic Church over the course of its lifetime. And what has the Catholic Church given back? So little. And what would, what is to stop a Pope getting on a plane in the morning, coming to Ireland, not doing rallies in the Phoenix Park, not getting everybody to wave flags outside their window, but, you know, taking a room in the mansion house or something and inviting in victims of abuse, inviting in priests who have lived good lives and are damaged by the things that they see have gone on, parents of children who have killed themselves. What is to stop a Pope sitting in one of those rooms without cameras from Ye there, without um, newspapers there, just quietly, privately talking to people? Why can't they do that? You could still be home in the, in the Vatican in time for your dinner. Um, I, I, I find that shocking. And until they are willing to acknowledge all these things and talk about them and bring them into the open, the problem is these things will continue to go on. 
Actually, I, I fully agree with you. And uh, but as I listen to it, I wonder how much of Odin is there in you, John? Because one one of the moments where he does get angry is when he talks about the role of women in the church, and he really gets fired up. And mm-hmm. and, and I thought, wow, you know, again, uh, clearly fighting in a to me in in just situation. And when I listen to you now as well, it sounds like there's not an awful lot of difference between yourself and Odin. Well, somewhat, I think. Um I mean, you couldn't really call women a minority because um, it's a 50-50 world, I suppose, but they are treated like a minority. And I think if you um, if you come from another minority, and I feel that I do because I'm gay, then perhaps you, you have more instinct towards that and you recognise inequality easier and you recognise that the, the way that the sort of the white male heterosexual world will put down everybody who isn't them. Having said all that, it is encouraging. Like last week, of course, when the Synod of Bishops um, did everything that they could to to block, you know, embracing gay people in the church or women in the church, at least it's encouraging that the Pope himself, who is the boss, um, seems to be the guy who is the most progressive thinking on this. However, you know, somebody said to me recently that if you became CEO of a major worldwide organization that had had a, these, this level of problems, the first thing you would do is you would get rid of the board of directors. You get rid of them all, sack them. Um, now, you know, I suppose you can't really do that, but maybe you could, you know, in the church. Just sack all the cardinals, start from scratch. If they don't, you know, what happened to papal infallibility? You know, they, they, they always like papal infallibility when it's, when it's on their side. But, you know, now when the bishops say no to something, why, why, why doesn't the Pope just say, well, tough, I'm the Pope, I'm in charge and I'm infallible, you're going to do what I say. You know, go for it, I say. It's interesting what Han says there that he saw a lot of you or something of you in Audrin. Like, I was struck by the Audrin's reaction to his brother-in-law Christian's death. Uh, he speaks of the cruel, inexplicable brutality of such an early uh, loss and that entity that I call God, but that acts on a whim to destroy our humanity. Those are sentiments that I think an awful lot of people would feel in that circumstance if you know, if such a loss happened in their own lives. I wonder, though, this guy's a priest and he's got a first in philosophy. To me, that didn't sound like uh, the reaction of of a priest, of a believer, like he does have a vocation despite his mother having Mm. pushed him into uh, the seminary. He acknowledges himself that actually that was the place for him. Uh, He was at home there. I just kind of felt that at times he didn't, talk or think the way a priest might with seven years training in yeah. seminary? I, I think uh, you, you, could, you could well be right. Um, I think w- when those moments come, they usually, when it's something that affects him personally, you know, with his brother-in-law who he, who he loves and he respects, um, his early death uh, affects him personally. So he questions things in the way that he doesn't when it's a more just a, a general question about the world. Uh, but but when it hits home, when it hits into his life, his family, then he, he's perhaps he steps away from the the priesthood a little bit and questions questions God. Although he rarely questions his vocation. I mean, one thing I wanted to come back to time and again in the book was that yes, he he has been probably pushed into this, um, but the the coincidence in a way is actually this is where he's supposed to be. This is a life that actually is right for him, and he's good at it. Interesting, though, because one of the most powerful condemnations often is not actually about the goodness or otherwise of his character or what he knew or what he didn't know, but actually 
he is challenged as to whether or not he is actually a priest in the sense that he spends so much of his life and is only happy to be sheltered as a librarian or a teacher in Terenure College. And, you know, the last thing he wants to do is to be out in the parish actually dealing with pastoral matters in the community. Yeah, that's something that um, when I started it, I, I, I guess because, again, I have this history in books of my characters having a lot to do with books. And I just liked the idea of him being quietly shut away, almost monastically, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a school library and, and teaching. And even when he has to go into the classroom, he doesn't particularly want to be there either. He'd rather just be locked away. And I, and I started that way because I didn't know where his journey was going to take me. But I wanted it to take me to a place where he didn't really want to get out in the world, you know. I think when he comes he comes back from Rome, for example, he is a little bit traumatised. And um, I think he just never feels a great confidence about um, helping others, about, about being a priest. I'm not sure. It's not something, it, now that you say it, I don't know. I don't know if, it, if, that's, uh, if it's entirely successful that I did that. But um, I just liked the idea of him hiding away from the world and, and the reader asking, well, well, why are you hiding? Sure. No, it's fascinating and it's complex. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, um, when I started to go through the novel a second time and I was kind of charting uh, the names of victims and the names of abusers, I realised the extent to which the novel is flooded by, you know, evil clergy uh, you know, either people sort of committing crimes or complicit in them or, you know, multiplying them by uh, sending the same priest to a huge number of different parish- parishes. Um, and, you know, Oren is the only person who shows kind of uh, any moral fibre at all. Um, I wonder, you know, is that really your conception of the church or, you know, are you just you're demonstrating something, um, you know, you're making us face something as a society that we have refused to face in the past? I, I think, and, and this probably isn't an original thought, but I think that those those bishops who um, received word about what certain priests were doing mm-hmm. and then decided to move them from parish to parish are themselves criminals. And I have never quite understood why they have not been arrested. I mean, if if, if I knew that, like, you know, the, the Bank of Ireland was going to be robbed tomorrow and I didn't go and tell the police, then I'm sure I would be guilty of some crime. And I've never quite understood, you know, all the way up to John Paul II, why, and I'm not trying to be facetious, but why he wasn't arrested for, for criminal behaviour, because in my opinion, he, he was the greatest criminal of them all, the mastermind behind, behind the whole thing. And the business of moving priests around. And so many priests, including this priest, including Father Yates in this book, is aware of this. He sees a priest moving every two years from parish to parish to parish. And the, you know, the, the bishops who knew that, when, when, when we, you know, over the last number of years, when we heard about Cardinal Brady refusing to resign and only resigning because he turned 75, terrific, you know, when you, when you hear about him saying, well, you know, yeah, I was in a room, I took notes when, when somebody came, but sure, all I was was a note taker. You have to wonder whether the, the man actually has psychological problems, you know, because the idea that that is a justification, the idea that you can get up in a pulpit and preach at people and tell people how to live their lives and and claim to have some sort of moral superiority over people when you've sat in a room and you've taken notes 
about the fact that one of your colleagues has been abusing a child and you've done nothing about it, well, I mean, it just beggars belief, really. It beggars belief. And I do not understand why people like Cardinal Brady are not in prison. Did you look at the portrayal of priests in other works before you tackled this? No, I didn't. And that's not something I generally do with a novel. I don't, you know, with, with a, a subject, whether it's the First World War or the Russian Revolution or, or, or the church. No, I don't want to, I don't want to be influenced by, by other books or other works. Um, I don't think that would be sensible from my perspective. Just on a lighter note, we're going to wrap up in a bit, but, um, the, how do you manage, uh, conveying a sense of a different period, a different era? Um, the reviewer in the Irish Times, Tina Hunt Mahoney, mentioned the product placement as she called it, references to Calvita cheese sandwiches mm. or Sidona or whatever. Well, a lot of that was just recalling my own childhood. You know, the there's um, because I hadn't written about Ireland before, suddenly these all these memories were coming back. You know, there's a pivotal scene early on in the book where uh, Odin and his family go down to Wexford for a summer holiday. We used to always go down to Wexford on our summer holidays. And there's just things like, you know, he eats, he eats Alpen while he's, while he's down there. And we, we only ever were allowed to have Alpen on our summer holidays. For some reason, it was considered fancy. A treat. And yeah, and, and I love Alpen. But every, t- but now I have Alpen. And I think to myself, when I have it, I can have it whenever I want, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, I, I guess I was just trying to bring back all those, those things, you know, when you're sitting on the beach and there's, you're eating this, this the Calvita cheese sandwiches and there's just this little crunchiness in the center from the, from the sand. And you always have these warm bottles of, Sidona and Seven Up, and you know the Tato crisps mm. and everything. Um, I, it's not so much, I think, product placement as as just detail and mm. detail that I enjoyed mm. bringing out. In fact, what is tougher is it conveying a, a genuine sense of the past, or is it conveying a sense of a different country? Do you find it harder writing about Rome or writing about? 1950s oh, I found it, Ireland. I found it much harder writing about Rome, even though I didn't live in 1950s Ireland. But yeah, I found the the Rome section harder. There was. I would not say this was the most difficult of all the novels I've written, and I think it was to write, and I think that's because I, I, I waited all these years to write it, and I didn't, I hadn't used all these memories and all these ideas in different books, and I couldn't, I wasn't saying to myself, oh, I've done that bit before or something. So for, for a dark and troubling story, it was a pleasure to write it, actually. I found myself excited to sit down every day to write this book, and it's not always like that. Sometimes it's more difficult than others. It's always a, a pleasure to write, and I, I, I love writing. But there are books that are more difficult to write. This one was not the most difficult in that sense. It, you know, it just it it poured out. It, How long did it take to write? It took about it took about two years from start to finish. The first draft, um, about ten months, and then you know be, because I don't plot out, the the later drafts take a lot longer for me because the first draft is just basically a mess and so much has happened in it later on that I didn't know was going to happen. So, you know, all the earlier bits have to get changed enormously. But it took about the guts of two years, I would say. Thank you very much, John, for coming in and speaking with us. Thanks, Hans. Thanks, Jacinta. And thank you for listening. Keep an eye on the Irish Times Books website over the coming days when we'll be announcing the next title in our book club.